I'm Laura Clinton, and this is KindredCast, unfiltered conversations with the business and cultural leaders who shape the world we live in. KindredCast is a production of Kindred Media, powered by Liontree, the independent investment and merchant bank for creativity, community, and capital. Today, we're joined by Aaron Levant, CEO of Network, a curated live stream shopping experience featuring the world's best creators. In conversation with Liontree's Ali Walton, the pair discuss everything from Aaron's entrepreneurial beginnings to the drive behind his many ventures today. Enjoy. Hello, everyone. I'm Allie Walton. I'm an investor here at Liontree on the asset management team. And today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Aaron Levant, CEO and founder of Network. Aaron, welcome. We're excited to have you here. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So we are going to get into Network and the company that you have built and continue to build, which, by the way, is a portfolio company of Liontree. We are investors in Aaron, proud investors. But before we get into that, I'd actually love to just Go all the way back to the beginning, Aaron, because you have a really interesting story. You also have started and built multiple other companies. So if you don't mind, would you want to just give us your life story real quick? <laughs> yeah, I'll try to give you the uh, abridged version. But yeah, I'm a sort of entrepreneur from here in Los Angeles. I've been in the uh, startup ecosystem since I was 16 years old, believe it or not. I uh, had a, a unique upbringing where I never finished high school. I got thrown out of high school pretty early. I got my GED through the mail. I never went to college and I started working in the apparel industry in the late 90s in LA. I was a graphic designer working at some early LA streetwear brands. Through that experience, I worked my way up the ranks, becoming graphic designer, art director. I got in sales, marketing, just learned the inside out of how the clothing industry worked. And through that experience, I ended up starting one of my own brands, which came fairly successful in the early 2000s. And through that process, I started traveling around the country, going to trade shows to sell my clothing brand. And I looked around in 2002 at age of 19 at the B2B trade show industry. And I said, how hard could this be? Someone rents out a big convention center and sublets it out to people. And I said, I think I want to do that. And at the ripe age of 19, I started my second startup, which was a B2B trade show company in the streetwear, sneaker, and action sports space. That company was called Agenda. I developed that business over the next decade to become the largest streetwear, sneaker, and action sports B2B trade show in the world for the retail industry. I sold that company to Reed Exhibitions, which is a publicly traded largest event company in the world at the time for B2B events and consumer events. I stuck with it through my earnout period. I sold them a portfolio of four shows, and then I worked at Reed Exhibitions for the next five years, developing then a portfolio of 30 shows. Through that process, I launched another business in conjunction with Complex Media called Complex Con. So we were doing a lot of going to media companies, licensing or JVing with them on their intellectual property and building IRL experiences for their fan community. So Complex Con was a good example of that. My team also launched one with Pop Sugar called Pop Sugar Playground. I was in the middle of doing it with Vice before I ended up actually leaving to come work on Network. So that was a big piece of the business. And along the way, I was also investing in and starting other startups. So I actually started an agency business called Network, coincidentally, same name, different company. That was the CAA or William Morris for brands. We would represent brands from outside the United States in their wholesale and retail marketing in the U.S. Through that company, we found a brand called Herschel Supply Backpack that some of you probably know or have seen walking through the airport in their first year of business. We helped grow that to over a $100 million business. We ended up selling that company to Herschel. I retained the name. They took the staff in the offices. Later, I repurposed Network instead of an agency business into the retail marketplace that it is today. Wow. Okay. So you covered a lot there. Let's just backtrack real quick. Are you comfortable telling us 
why you got kicked out of high school? Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, I was a little juvenile delinquent who was interested in graffiti and hip hop. And I think I came to school with like weed or something, which, you know, now is legal, but I was probably yeah. still too young even it was legal anyway. And uh, I think I ended up getting kicked out because of that. And my mom says I'm oppositionally defiant, where I have a tendency mm-hmm. to go against authority, which my mom and my dad always have this thing they said, which was a detriment to me in the school world, I think has been an advantage to me in business. The idea yeah. of what we call disrupting in high school was not a fun idea. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, it's funny. I feel like as parents, they're probably really proud of you now and proud of that trait. But I'm sure in high school, it was tough. Yeah, there were a few years that they were not so proud, but uh, I ended up on the right (laughs) side of history. So yeah. Yeah. And then you said you started a retail brand when you left high school. What kind of brand was that? It was was a streetwear brand. Yeah, streetwear clothing brand. I was working at a brand, learning the ropes. And me and the founder of the brand I was working at actually ended up starting a new brand together called Green Apple Tree, which is kind of like an early lifestyle streetwear brand in the early 2000s. That brand ended up, I think, getting up to like 20 million in sales. So it became pretty successful for one of my first endeavors. And then I ended up leaving to do the trade show thing full time. Wow, really interesting. So it seems like you've always had this knack for entrepreneurship. You've been someone who goes against the rain and builds things. What's your first memory of feeling that and leaning into it? Is it that retail brand? No, all the stuff I talked about a minute ago is like my first real business startups that were generating real revenue and really became companies that had employees and were investable and sellable. But I, for some reason, had just been doing entrepreneurial things since the time I was seven to nine years old. I started a car magazine when I was eight years old, where I was just cutting out pictures from other books and car magazines and assembling my own one. And I actually took the magazine, it was called Hot Cars, to my next door neighbor at the time, who was an Arby's franchisee. And I sold him the back cover at eight years old. So I did my first ad deal at eight years old. I just knew it wouldn't be a real magazine unless it had a cover ad. So I just felt like that would make it real. Later on, when I was still in high school, I taught myself web design, graphic design. So I was doing early Dreamweaver and HTML stuff. So I I was publishing a graffiti website out of my parents' house, trying to sell ads. I was trying to publish DVDs, create videos. I learned Photoshop, After Effects, Dreamweaver. So I was just learning programs and trying to like make little businesses out of them from a very young age, from eight to 15 before I got kicked out of high school. Wow. And do you feel like your parents really allowed you to lean into that and make these things and supported you in these business endeavors? Yeah. I'd hardly call them business endeavors, but yeah, my parents were super supportive. My mom was like an entrepreneur, even though she was a mom who was taking care of three kids. She's always had a side hustle, like buying clothing at wholesale and selling it out of our garage to her friends and doing things like that. So I think she had a a natural hustle. I come from a family of entrepreneurs. So I think that was just naturally ingrained in us. Yeah. That's awesome. What's your favorite thing about being a founder? That's a tough one. A lot of the things I've done are community-based. And I don't mean the community of people here in like Los Angeles, but I mean, whatever it is, the streetwear community, the art community, the sneaker community, mm-hmm. like I'm bringing people together first through physical platforms, like the events that I was doing, both B2B events and consumer events, now something like network. I'm bringing together hundreds or thousands or tens of thousands of brands, retailers, media, athletes, influencers, et cetera, onto something. And to see everyone get together and the sharing of ideas and the blending of concepts and people meeting and relationships being built at these events, that's been really fun and rewarding for me. And I think that's my favorite part. It's not necessarily yeah, money or being successful as a result of it, but in the process, bringing people together is probably the commonality or the through line of everything that I've done. Yeah. Well, my next question was going to be, what do you think your superpower is as a founder? I was asked to speak at NYU a few months ago. First time I've been out of the house since the pandemic slowed down. And I went to the fashion school there and I gave a speech. I was putting together some slides. I wrote something down that I thought was interesting. Some people say ignorance is bliss. And I say like ignorance is rich. And it's that I've always fallen into doing something I really didn't know anything about. And I've been more successful in that field because I didn't have the preconceived notions or institutional knowledge about a specific space. And Mm -hmm. 
you guys are in investment banking, right? You have to be very smart to do that, whatever. This may be a bad analogy, but like if I try to be an investment banker, the lack of things I know about it may be a part of my success because when you know so much about something, some of you are like, oh, you're not supposed to do it that way. You're not, and then you kind of right. stop because of the way you've been taught. So when I got into the trade show business, trade show business is a multi-billion dollar global media business. If I would have known what I know today when I started the trade show, I never would have done it because it's so hard and you have to have so many relationships and infrastructure and capital. And I kind of fell into it and I ended up being really successful because of what I didn't know and that lack of institutional knowledge in almost any space I've entered, whether it was food, whether it was clothing, whether it was now marketplaces and platforms, that's actually been, I think, my superpower is that I try things that other people would be like, oh, you shouldn't do it that way. That's sometimes actually the best way, kind of my wonky approach. Yeah, I love that, actually, because I think a lot of people who want to start things might say, oh, I don't know enough about that space. I couldn't possibly go start something there. But it actually could be the edge is what you're saying. Yeah, it's absolutely the edge. And I just got done listening to a Phil Knight's shoe dog book, and he definitely didn't know anything about making shoes when he started, right? Yeah. And it's like you figure it out. But sometimes those people that know a lot about it, they're institutionalized with fear, really. Yeah, totally. Okay, so we'll get to network now. So you founded it in 2018. You've been working on it ever since. Do you want to give a quick overview of what network is so that our audience understands? Yeah. Me and my two co-founders, Gaston and Jamie, got working on this in 2018. They actually, previous to me getting involved, had a really successful comic book store here in LA that the idea actually came out of. It was like this pop culture mecca. It was like this huge 8,000 square foot comic book store on Sunset Boulevard. They were not just selling comic books, but toys and pop culture and apparel. And in the back of the comic book store, they had a comedy club, believe it or not, where like some of the top comedians in the world would come do sets at night in the back of a comic book store. They had a show on Comedy Central for three years. It was this really eclectic place. J.J. Abrams would always be in there hanging out. It's this really cool wow. place. And out of there, they started doing just a YouTube show of people's collections and it's kind of like this QVC meets Comic-Con thing. And that's where the initial insight came out of. How do we take these hyper-passionate fans and collectors and turn them into their own version of QVC? I ended up joining up with them in 2018. They had been doing the comic book store for 20 years before that. The idea was exactly that. Like if you ask me, it's like the QVC for Gen Z or QVC meets Comic-Con. So how do we bring pop culture and fandom together in a mobile-first, digital video, native commerce environment and do broadcasts. That was all I needed. And I'd seen the trends coming out of China with Taobao and the live shopping revolution that's happening there, which is now, I don't know, by estimates that I've read, systems are right between a $350 billion to a $500 billion business now in China. Uh, a quarter of all e-commerce transactions by next year in China will be done in live or social commerce. So I've seen these staggering statistics coming out of China and it's like, hey, why is that not happening here in the US? So we were probably one of, if not the first venture-backed startup in North America really attacking this problem. Now today I'm tracking about 20 plus companies going after this in various verticals. I quit that job at Read Exhibition, so I'd sold my company too. My earnout was over. And in May of 2018, joined up with these guys in a crazy comic book shop and we started going after it to do this. And the rest is history. But I'm happy to go in deeper on any of those points. Were you already friends with your fellow co-founders? How'd you meet them? No, I didn't know them. Well, one of them I actually had met 20 years earlier when I was selling clothing. I actually sold some stuff to his comic book shop. Wow. I hadn't seen him in all that time. Mark you made Echo. an impression clearly though. He yeah. really liked you. <laughs> yeah. Mark Echo, who is the founder of Complex Media and my mentor and a really prolific entrepreneur in his own right, started Echo Clothing, Complex Media. He now works at Emerson Collective doing a lot of amazing stuff. He called me up and he asked me to take a meeting with Jimmy Iovine, who at the time was the CEO of Apple Music. And Jimmy is a major investor and board member of the company still today. I said, of course, I'll meet Jimmy Iovine. I just watched the documentary, The Defiant Ones, et cetera. Never met him. Big fan of his work across Beats, Interscope Records, and Apple Music. I go take this meeting with Jimmy based on Mark's recommendation. And Jimmy told me about 
the idea because he was already involved with the company before I was involved. The initial idea of the company, when it was still the comic book store in Meltdown, they were already trying to do this. And I heard him out at the meeting and he had this QVC meets Comic-Con idea on the back of a napkin. And I said, that sounds great. I went home that night. I wrote a business plan and then got introduced to the other guys. And the rest is history. We became all best friends and started working on this. Were you worried at all about building the relationship between the co-founders before just jumping in? Was there any time period there where you felt like you needed to build that relationship? Or did you immediately know they would be good co-founders to go with you into this? Yeah, I'm paraphrasing a lot in this discussion. But yeah, there was six months between the time of that meeting with Jimmy to actually me quitting my job establishing the LLC, raising capital. So there's a lot of time in there, like spent mm-hmm. with those guys, dinners, conversations, late nights. So yeah, definitely built a great friendship and camaraderie with my other two co-founders. But I'm also the kind of person that I make decisions pretty quick, for better or for worse. Mm-hmm. I can tell in the first conversation, do I like someone? Do I want to be in business with them? Give me about an hour and I probably have my decision made. And so within the company, what do you focus on versus what do they focus on? Gaston and Jamie really focused on the content and the curation side of the products and we sell and the creators we work with and the retailers we work with. And I'm focused on as a CEO on fortunately everything, unless you want to take (laughs) some stuff off my plate from raising funds, hiring, firing, building strategy, building teams, the technology, the marketplace, the go-to-market, legal, I mean, everything that you get to do as a CEO. So I've got a a broad mandate and they have the fun job. You mentioned China earlier and how big live stream shopping already is in that geographic. What does your geographic demographic look like? What's the split based on the users and buyers that you have on the platform right now? Yeah. We're about 80% North America focused with our audience. There are people from 110 countries that buy product, but we are not focused in those countries from a logistics or language perspective. In Mm -hmm. the future, we will expand to other geos, probably Asia and Western Europe to begin with. Western Europe and Japan are our two biggest verticals. We do have a lot of people buying from China and using a freight forwarder to ship things to China just because the population is so big there. There isn't an area we're focused on. There is no Mandarin version of network that's available. It's largely a male-based audience, about 78% male. So North America, male-based, all 31 years old is our average customer, multicultural male from a major U.S. city is really who we're targeting and who ends Mm -hmm. up buying the stuff and consuming the most content. Interesting. And so what does your go-to-market look like given that you are focused on a geography that maybe isn't as far along as they are in Asia. How do you go to market? How do you get people excited about this kind of product? We started off partnering with really large talent, celebrities, and brands. So when you think about the landscape of live or social commerce in the U.S., there's companies building different types of products. There's a lot of people building what I would call like a UGC or peer-to-peer platform where you're allowing just consumers to sell things to each other. Let's call it like eBay with video. We did something very different. We really focused on that QVC analogy where we have big celebrities showing up with exclusive products, selling it just on our platform. They would go to their social channels and tell people, hey, we're doing a live stream on network from their Instagram or from their Twitter or et cetera and drive people to our platform. So we did a lot of that in the beginning to kind of build awareness not only for our company and the products we're selling, but just for live shopping in general. So we've had the ability to drive some of the biggest celebrities in the world, whether it was LeBron James or Billie Eilish, et cetera, who's done live streams on our platform and bringing over tens of thousands of new consumers every time they do that. And I know I've read a couple of your previous interviews, et cetera. You've mentioned that there's this FOMO dynamic. Can you talk a little bit about that and how you guys lean into that? We moved significantly over the last, whatever it is, decade or more, from we grew up, or I grew up, I'm a little older now, watching live television, right? So it's like, hey, it was like, you had to tune in to watch the show at this time, at this place. And as we move to the Netflixization of everything, you watch what you want, when you want, how you want. And 
getting people back to this dynamic to watch concurrent live content really today only exists for sports and a few big like the Oscars or the Olympics or something where people are concurrently watching. So we had to change the behavior direction. The direction really went to on-demand versus live. So it's creating these live streams that felt like fear of missing out in terms of you were going to miss the product. It was going to be gone if you didn't get it. So the limited nature, the excitingness that what was going to happen in the content and the content was like evaporating, almost like Snapchat. You wouldn't, in the beginning, you weren't able to go back and watch it. So really about everything from the content and the product, creating these moments that I would equate to the closest thing, which is a very different product. But remember HQ Trivia when that was big for a mm -hmm. minute? It was like everyone was tuning in at that time. It was 12 and four, whatever the times were. Everyone was tuning in, watching, engaging, and trying to create that type of FOMO. But except instead of trivia or quizzes, we were doing it around shopping and drops. What's the highest number of users you've had on a single event? And do you remember which event that was? You can define event in two ways. We do a singular live stream. We've had up to like 70 to 90,000 concurrent viewers watching and trying to buy a product simultaneously, which wow. is a lot. Something like Twitch can sometimes get much more than that. But for our early stage, that was a lot. And then sometimes event is like a shopping festival, which is an assemblage of multiple live streams over a two-day period. Not sure if you're familiar with Alibaba Singles Day, which is the mm -hmm. largest shopping event in China. I believe Alibaba Singles Day is like 120 billion in GMV in two days or something crazy. We're doing something similar, but instead of a discount-driven festival, we're doing a full-price premium festival every other month around, let's say, basketball or art or food or sneakers. So these are digital shopping events with some big celebrities, big brands, exclusive product, live music performances, and we'll get about a quarter million people coming to something like that. Wow. You mentioned that you guys partner with celebrities to create hype, but you also have big brands. I've also checked out on the website, you can apply to be a seller on network. How does that application process, what does that look like? And how are you guys vetting the sellers that do come on the platform? What's the criteria yeah. that you're ticking through? So we've been in business about four years and the evolution of the business is what I call expanding the aperture. So when we first started in 19 and 20, when we went live, it was very curated, very few live streams a week. First, it was one a week. Then it was one a day. Then it was three a day. It's continued to grow the amount of live streams per day. And not necessarily that we're diluting the quality, but if now we're at the point we're doing, let's say, 50 to 300 live streams a day, not everything can be a massive celebrity. We first started only catering to large celebrities and brands. Then it started introducing retailers. Then we introduced the idea of resale. Eventually, we introduced the idea of prosumers and eventually peer-to-peer. -peer. So we're continuing to expand down that pyramid and allow more and more sellers onto the platform to make it a more dynamic marketplace and have more supply-side liquidity. I don't have the, the screen up, but I always make the infograph here for our team of that pyramid. The smallest, most coveted piece of the pyramid is that top where you have those exclusive celebrity product releases. But then there may be people doing card breaks, people selling resale sneakers. That could be happening 100 times a day or eventually 100 times an hour as we scale. There's more scalability in the lower rungs of the pyramid. Obviously, with a big brand, a big luxury brand, you don't really have to worry as much about validating the product in any way. But I know some of these other resale brands, especially where they're peer-to-peer, -peer, have faced some trouble in the market recently around fake products, fake luxury products. How do you think about that? Maybe you haven't launched that yet, but how would you think about making sure that those products are actually valid? Because we're a B2C marketplace and not a peer-to-peer -peer marketplace, we have less need to do what other marketplaces, let's say the real, real or StockX are doing around authentication. So mm -hmm. first, our job is embedding professional sellers. So we first started doing something more like Farfetch was, where we're aggregating inventory from brands or from authorized retailers of those brands. There's no authentication needed there. Mm -hmm. Then when we get into resale, that's where it gets a little tricky. Now, the lack of profit that some of these other marketplaces are making on the resale side is because they've introduced authentication. And that is a huge cost center. 
We've tried to stay away from that by basically going to really trusted sellers, not someone who has a pair of shoes or a handbag they want to sell and a spare thing where that could let fraud in. We're working with people who have retail stores or warehouses full of millions of dollars worth of product. They have a reputation. They've been in business for five to 10 years. They have a whole world of consumers who already trust them and they do self-authentication. And we're really working on aggregating that layer of the resale market where they are authenticators in their own right. There's not 100% accuracy there, but even as you've seen in some of the news with the lawsuits with StockX right now, even fakes are getting through StockX, hence why Nike's yeah. suing them. And they're spending, I don't know, assumingly hundreds of millions of dollars a year on authentication. There's no foolproof way and the Chinese fakes are getting pretty good. So the point being is our business model is a little different and we have no involvement in authentication, but we spend a lot of time on vetting those sellers. And then once mm -hmm. they're in, they're in. And again, people make mistakes and if someone is caught selling frauds, we kick them off the platform. I don't know if you're able to share this, but do you know what is the highest priced item that you've sold on network to date in the live stream event? In 2022, not overall revenues for a singular SKU, one transaction yeah. was $20,000. So we do do some high-end stuff. And in 2021, it was $65,000 for a Takashi Murakami sculpture. Wow, very interesting. Now that's not the meat of our business. We're more in that three to $500 price point on average for collectibles and art and lower for cards and apparel. But we do have occasionally really high stuff. And the other interesting thing is in the last two months, we've entered in the live auction space, which is a really interesting commerce modality that allows things to get bid up similar, like a digital version of a Sotheby's auction. We're just starting with that. We're seeing a lot of things go for higher than retail or resale value. So I think this year we'll break the highest price ever through a live auction, which we didn't have before. It was always a buy it now price. And have you guys broken into the NFT market at all? Did you guys play in that <laughs> given the NFT we, art? Yeah. I mean, look, like everyone else in, what was that? I don't know if it was 2020, 2021, whatever the craze yeah, was. Who knows? <laughs> um, you know, yeah, we did some experimenting. I think we made a couple million dollars in the space. And as it started to die off, we decentralized it and ultimately are no longer involved in it as trying to be a marketplace for selling NFTs. What we actually saw. Our business is broken down into three divisions. We have our marketplace and platform division. We have our brand partnerships division, which is more like advertising. We have a fairly robust advertising business that sits on top of the platform. And we're seeing a lot of non-endemic brands come to us as a branded content solution to help them pair with credible creators in the space to create NFTs and digital collectibles. So we were doing more of that than actually selling the NFTs. It was more like stuff we're doing with various clients. Interesting. And that became a couple million dollar business unto itself. Yeah. So that advertising division, does it sit on top of the marketplace? So when there are live events, there are live ads for other brands that are playing? Is that how they, they yeah. work together? We basically are selling branded content integrations with the live streams on our platform. As an example, we'll pair a non-endemic brand, whether it be a car brand, a QSR brand, a CPG brand, a technology brand, with the credible creators who are already on our platform. Sometimes they're making a collaboration together. Sometimes those brands are sponsoring a festival, a music performance. Sometimes they're integrating into a creator's live stream. So we're basically giving them authentic ways to tap into our really sticky audience. And in the future, as we scale, we see other forms of advertising, like let's say, pre-roll and mid-roll on a live stream ads like you would see on Twitch. That's one way we'd see advertising. And then we'd see other advertising products similar to Amazon Media Group that would be like a promoted search placement on the homepage that are more programmatically driven. But right now we're doing a lot of branded content integrations. Very cool. Just switching to more of a economic macro looking forward type view, what did you see throughout 2022 and what are your expectations for 2023 and forward, especially as the economy is a little bit shaky right now? Yeah, I have two views. What is our, my view for our company and what's my view for the world? Because we're a fairly new company, we're less than five years in business. 
we had nowhere to go but up because we started from zero. And we happened to start the company one year before we saw the lockdowns and was the largest lift in e-commerce history. And people were looking for new ways to engage. People had stimulus money. So we were really good timing to be able to catch this wave and ride it. We didn't know what was going to happen going into it. And luckily, we saw the company double in size each year, 19 to 20, 2021, 22, et cetera. So we saw this really nice wave. What we started to see in summer of 22 was obviously lockdowns ended. People went back outside. Their share of wallet went from not just sitting around buying stuff online like they were before and ordering Postmates. They were going to a restaurant. They're going to a music festival. We saw some softening happen in the market, which is natural because people were just artificially constrained. And then towards the fourth quarter, it really started to pick up again. So we had this temporary softness due to just behavioral change and share of wallet change. And then we had our best Q4 ever out of the history of the company, even though we'd been doubling and doubling, it shot right back up to our highest by far. We're really bullish on the outlook for this year. But again, we're starting from a small base. So there's a lot of room for us to upside before we hit that critical mass where we would start to ebb and flow with the macroeconomic condition. Now, I still obviously am am well-read and see the gloom and doom on the news Companies that are at scale, like Amazon, who we just read laid off 18,000 people this week, they're so big that that artificial lift in e-commerce that we saw starting to come back and bite companies in the ass, whether you're Stripe, Shopify, Amazon, et cetera, they saw such a big spike and now they're seeing a meaningful downturn. We've luckily been able to avoid that and we're continuing to grow and continuing to invest in the business. So it takes us a couple more years before we get caught in the turbulent ticker of the macroeconomic. How do you think about cash conservation as opposed to growth? Yeah, it's a great question. It's just something that honestly, I debate with myself about. I debate with my CFO. I have healthy conversations to the board about this. And if you listen to a lot of podcasts, you know you hear a lot of different ideas and, and what you should be doing now. Conventional wisdom is hunker down, cut everything you can and try to get through the storm and wait for better market conditions before you start spending again and scaling because it's going to be a rough 18 to 24 months, however you want to look at it. And I generally agree with that. But I also believe in a time period like this, if you have the cash and you can make some strategic investments and be aggressive while other people are running for the hills, you can gain some ground. And I mm-hmm. think, you know, depending on which part of our business, we are making some strategic investments and are going to see some significant growth in some areas we have the boldness to invest in. But in certain areas, we are cutting expense not necessarily in headcount in a significant way, but like in paid performance media, Mm -hmm. we drastically cut back by half of what we plan to spend last year going into this year. So there are certain things. The ROI has changed. You're chasing, let's call it non-profitable growth. That was the big story. Changing from just top-line GMV growth to changing to bottom-line gross profit focus is the narrative shift, but it doesn't mean we don't want still some top-line growth. Yeah, absolutely. Any key areas of investment and growth that we should be looking out for in 2023 that you can give us a little highlight before it happens? We're always investing in our marketplace, but I think the key thing that differentiates network from any other social commerce or live shopping platform in the world is we really focus on exclusive content. So Mm. I always use this analogy. One of the things that drives some of these marketplace platforms, not necessarily in commerce, but in, let's say, audio or video, if you're looking at Netflix or HBO Max, why are you watching one of those platforms where they have exclusive content and it drives your behavior because you can only watch whatever Scorsese on Netflix or Spielberg here? What is that analogy for a company like Networks? We've entered into a lot of exclusive agreements with meaningful creators in the ecosystem, whether that's brands, musicians, artists, esports teams, et cetera, to do exclusive drops or to be exclusive with network for all of commerce or be exclusive with network for just live commerce. I spend a lot of my time thinking about that because at the end of the day, that's the moat. When we started, live stream shopping was a new idea that many people did not have. But anyone at a certain point can featureize the technology if you're a large social or video platform. 
I have a lot of thesis as why the large social video platforms are not successful in live commerce, which is a separate conversation. We did something with Post Malone in November that was a completely exclusive project to network. You couldn't buy it anywhere else. It's a huge promotion for us. It didn't matter how big Amazon is or how big someone else is, you can't buy it there. So mm-hmm. having those really exclusive contractual relationships with talent is a big moat and differentiator for us that I'm focused on. Then you'll see probably 10 new major exclusive deals going into this year. When you work with Post Malone on that, are you helping him come up with a product? Are you guys acting as a consulting services agency that's helping create a product alongside him? Or does he come to you with something? Every deal is different. The Post Malone one, we actually paired him up with Takashi Murakami, who's another client of ours, who's one of the biggest Japanese pop artists in the world. They made a collaboration together that coincided with Post Malone's concert in LA. They did a whole media campaign around it, and then it dropped exclusively on network. That one, we helped make the introduction of two prolific creators, and then Mm -hmm. we were the platform word outcome. Another analogy would be, we all know Gary Vaynerchuk or Gary Vee as a prolific voice in the community. He has a really sticky audience. When we first started in 2019, he came on network. He made a sneaker with K-Swiss. We didn't have anything to do with the relationship with K-Swiss or the manufacturing of that sneaker, but I convinced Gary to come and drop that on network exclusively. And he sold a thousand pairs of sneakers in one minute on network. So that is, again, using relationships or contractual nature to bring exclusive products, whether someone else originated it and we're just distributing it, or whether we actually help bring that marriage together. So we're doing a little bit of both. I think for one of those, it sounds like you guys have to be pretty good trend spotters as well. You have to be really active in the community, understanding what is taking off and doing well so that you can see it before it's a trend and grab it and make it exclusive to network. I spent a lot of time with Jimmy Iovine, who I mentioned previously was involved in the company as a board member and investor. And we talk about one key idea a lot, which is utility and culture. There's a lot of people out there building utilities. And what is their point of differentiation? We're not just a SaaS software solution. If that was what we were doing, we're probably going to get beat. We have a deep cultural understanding that we're applying on top of the utility. And it's that conversation of the technology and the culture and the program we put on top of that technology. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for the time today. It was awesome to have you. And we are super excited for what's to come for Network in 2023. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with a friend and feel free to rate and review it wherever you're listening. Stay tuned for more KindredCast conversations from leaders in business and beyond.